0: My name is Chris Charbonneau, and I'm the host of the Fall of Roe podcast. I'm a 40-year veteran of the pro-choice movement. I have been the CEO of Planned Parenthoods in seven different states and have decades of experience in the pro-choice realm. This is an unapologetically pro-choice podcast We are going to talk about the disaster that is the unfolding dismantling of the Roe standard across the United States, creating 50 states worth of patchwork laws, the danger that that poses to anyone of reproductive age and all of us who love them. We need to figure out how we as a collective are going to get through this, change this situation, give ourselves some hope, and get back to sanity in this country. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Fall of Roe podcast. This is Chris Charbonneau, your host. And with me today is my guest, Roberta Riley Esquire. She and I go back in that Roberta Riley's claim to fame in the reproductive health space is that she approached me one day at a cocktail party and said, you know, I don't know why it isn't sex discrimination for insurance companies to refuse to cover birth control when they cover everything else that men might need. And I said, well, you know, that's, that's really true. What do you think we ought to do about it, Riles? Her name is Roberta Riley. I call her Riles. And she said, well, I think we ought to bring a lawsuit and make the point that that's not fair. So Roberta and team set about to organize this case and all of the backup that this case would need and brought the case Erickson v. Bartell to the courts, and the court found that indeed it was sex discrimination to cover everything that men might need. And when it came to contraception, say, I don't know why we should cover that. That's a lifestyle choice. Now, keep in mind, at that time, the insurance companies were covering Rogaine for uh, male pattern baldness, but were not covering contraception. And some of us thought, you know, possibly dying in childbirth or having uh, really difficult pregnancies was at least as bad as being bald, and that it was, in fact, connected to a health condition. So Roberta Riley started uh, this project and brought it to fruition. And one of the thrills of my career, Riles, was the day after you won Erickson v. Bartel, as a CEO of Planned Parenthood at the time, getting the notice from a whole bunch of different states uh, in HR consulting attorneys saying you must cover contraception right away for your employees or you are at risk of being sued for sex discrimination and instantly overnight 38 states changed their practices and laws to cover birth control and for that you will always be a goddess in my mind. Um, Please welcome Roberta Riley to the Fall of Roe
1: podcast. So great to have you Riles. Thanks for having me Chris it's just delightful to be back but i have to say it really hurts too because you know one of the very thing the that very concept that women should have equal access to all the healthcare needs that they have and birth control is of course one of our most profoundly important and essential healthcare needs That is now being used against us by a majority of the Supreme Court. They're basically claiming that, geez, women are doing so well, they've come so far, they don't even need safe abortions anymore. And that hurts. It sucks. It hurts. It's wrong. It's just wrong because we still live in a world where women in this country still don't have complete good access to birth control And women around the world still are lacking birth control in huge numbers that they want to use.
0: And even if if everybody had access to birth control, there are still birth control failures because birth control is not 100%. And, you know, there will always be a need for uh, intervention in pregnancies that are planned that go horribly wrong. And so the idea that we would take these safety nets away from a whole lot of people who need them you know, has been unthinkable for most of my career. We planned for it, hoping we would never need to use any of those plans. And yet here we are. And have you been shocked at how that's rolled out? That sort of the gleeful craziness of the last couple of weeks since the leaked uh, Supreme Court potential majority opinion. Have you been shocked about that?
1: Well, I'm not shocked that this new majority has reached this conclusion, that does not surprise me because the right has been building up for this and the Republican Party has been promising this for so long. So that part didn't surprise me. But what does surprise me is just how horrific, like the Texas law and the Mississippi laws are really horrific reversal of, of um, all that we've come to know and rely upon and We're literally going back to the era of bounty hunters crossing state lines and to traumatize women and providers. And it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And as I read the draft opinion that was leaked, oh my goodness, it's very clear that this court is ready to recriminalize abortion. It's very clear. It struck me as outrageously extreme, this opinion. Yes, it's outrageously extreme. Well, and this whole originalist thinking I mean, women were not considered full citizens when the Constitution was enacted. Literally, this draft opinion begs for major constitutional overhaul because women were the property of their husbands back when the Constitution was enacted. Women couldn't hold jobs, they couldn't have bank accounts, they couldn't own property and they were not fully human. Really, this leaked opinion raises the question. It's not a question at all about whether a fetus is fully human. The question is whether a woman is.
0: And I think they ask and answer that in a way I don't think um, the vast majority of,
1: of us would approve of. Absolutely not. And And so, you know, because let's face it, the original constitution doesn't recognize women as Citizens. So we need a constitutional overhaul that it does recognize women as citizens. And let's face it, the three justices who kind of cemented this ultra conservative originalist majority were appointed by a president who lost the general election. And they were confirmed by a bunch of U.S. senators who represent far, far, far less than um half of all americans yeah The really the tyranny of minority rule here yes absolutely and it shows just how far a court that's packed in that way in a very undemocratic way just how far it can go and just how far individual states can go to impose really i don't know does the word draconian mean anything to it you does. chris it's, it's kind of used a, in law a lot uh, yeah
0: it's it's
1: um it's the most extreme of the extreme, and sort
0: of in a very and the neg- the connotation is exceedingly negative. That it's, it's um overplays the hand in a zealous kind of way, which which I think we are seeing we're seeing in ways that shock me. You know, the other day on yeah. the news, they were you know they they are honest to god debating whether or not you could imprison women for life for getting an abortion, or you can actually just execute her. And I'm like. Because pro-life, you know, and, and through my 40-year career in reproductive health, one of the mantras of the anti-choice side was always, we will never go after the women involved. They are the victims of the doctors. They are the victims of Planned Parenthood. They are the victims of a an ideology of libertine Jezebels or whatever they came up with all the time. And that, of course, the women are innocent in this. I mean, we don't even have dry ink on a real Supreme Court decision before we have elected representatives in some of these states deciding that they're going to execute citizens on something that still remains constitutionally protected. I mean, maybe only for, for another month. But wow, did the fig leaf come off that quickly? It's astounding to me how disingenuous. It always was. And of course we knew this, uh, those of us working in this. I mean, the first time somebody, you know, filled out a death certificate with all my own information on it and mailed it to me, you know, about how they wish I would die and, you know, put in cause of death, you know, shot through the brain or whatever they said. It was clear to me that we didn't like pro-life was interesting, but it really didn't have anything to do with what we were talking about. What we were talking about was power and control, by these people over women, and um, they didn't like powerful women helping women get access, Um, and they were quite willing to consign us to whatever horrific fate they could dole out. But here we have them maybe going after some teenager who just wants to live her life. Or maybe go to college. Maybe she wants to go to college. Think about that. Yeah, maybe she came from a family that was kind of unstable, and she hopes to to make a better world for herself. You know, it's uh, phenomenal how how unapologetically they are going after that. I I have to say, I always knew that about them, but the glee with which they're doing it is shocking. The idea that John Roberts on the court was going to write a more centrist opinion, and that that opinion was going to embrace. The Missouri law. I mean, my reaction to that was And how wonderful is that? Exactly. Law?
1: Oh my <laughs> God. That's a law
0: with a 15-week ban. And, you know, of course, the vast majority of abortions happen in the six, seven-week uh, post, you know, like missed period time frame. And 15 weeks is obviously a lot longer than that. But let's let's talk for a moment about who would get caught up in a 15-week ban. It would mean no genetic testing could be done and complete it and a family making a knowledgeable decision about that because 15 weeks is not enough time for that. And so if you have a number of genetic conditions, this medical care would would now be outside of your purview. You could do those tests, but it would just help your family prepare for the catastrophe that was coming at all of you. Um, there would be no recourse to actually get an abortion after you got that information. And that is the opinion that they thought
1: would be the soft middle. (laughs) It's like, oh, (laughs) yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's insane. I mean, it's absolutely insane. But it also, you know, the first thing my legal mind goes to when I think about the extremeness of this is I think about South Africa under apartheid. You know, there you had a bunch of idiots who were so threatened by the idea of black people who were in the majority, vast majority. They were so threatened by the idea of black people having the right to hold jobs or go to school or vote. (laughs) Did Did I say vote? They were so threatened by that idea that they enacted all these crazy apartheid laws that got worse and worse and worse over the years. And it got to the point where their zealousness in, you know, protecting against this perceived threat of black people having agency as citizens, okay, they were so threatened by that that it got to the point where they were torturing people in huge numbers, they were imprisoning people and killing people and disappearing people in huge numbers, they were committing horrible, horrible human rights atrocities regularly and systematically. And it even got to the point where they were splitting apart interracial couples. They would do this hair test. Back in my day, I would have flunked the hair test because they used a pencil to see if it would fall out of your hair. And if it fell out of your hair, then you're a white person. But if it stayed in your hair, then you're a black person because you have frizzy hair. They did crap like that. And they were literally splitting families apart, loving couples with children. They would split them apart because, my God, the law says you can't live together, you can't interact together. That is apartheid. And so it reminds me of that sort of extremeness when, they came, when it came down to you know, really looking at what the human implications of such an extreme law are. It was insane. It was just absolutely insane. And that is where this podcast focuses.
0: Although I have a legal expert par excellence with me, um, rather than trying to guess what courts will do or, or any of that, we want to explore the human cost of whatever these challenges and decisions might be. So for the first time, I mean, you talk about where this can go. And I think that that points us to the cautionary tale that is, The people who are making these decisions in these states cannot stay in their seats and continue to make these decisions or that kind of mayhem will ensue. And and for people who think that's an overreaction, I would point to where we are today. We are actually on the cusp of 26 states completely banning abortion on the strength of an advisor. I mean, like a a leaked internal possible opinion. And the courts own horrific behavior in not undoing the vigilante provision of the Texas law to begin with. Because as we could have predicted, we have any number of states adding in vigilante provisions into their own work in order to keep this from being something that states are responsible for. So states can sort of throw up their hands and say, oh, it's not me. It's it's Oh, we can't do it. Nothing we can do. do Because it's Joe... Joe's private citizen that's out there making this cause. So so the court can't come after me, state of Texas or Idaho, or, you know, count the number of states that are adding vigilante provisions to what they're doing. But for the first time, I'm hearing things like vigilantes can turn in people who travel over state lines to help a young person get an abortion or help any person get an abortion. And that they could be paid for this through some sort of legal action against the people who help her. And so what are your thoughts about things like these travel bans and these vigilante actions? Because I've started to hear from the people who are having a good time with this. Oh, um, you know, there's going to be a whole, a whole industry because suddenly being an industry in America is a problem. There's going to be a whole industry that helps women um, circumvent these laws or pregnant people. So we're talking women, girls, and and people who identify differently than women but have the capability of being pregnant. That they will somehow be helped and therefore, you know, you need to go be able to go after all the people involved in this And there needs to be money in it for you. And somehow the people enforcing these laws will not be state actors. When you think about this, how risky do you think this is for somebody trying to help a woman move from point A to point B to get a service that's
1: legal where she goes? Oh, hell, I think we should all be helping women. And we could just clog the court systems. We could absolutely, we could absolutely clogged the court system to the point where the Supreme Court would wish that it had struck down this Texas law because because the truth is and you know I'm willing I'm willing to do this too I really am but it's not just about me personally it's about you know if you think about it we got a heck of a lot of states such as Washington and California and Oregon and and other states the northeast where state, we could enact Illinois, Illinois. There is nothing prohibiting our state legislatures from enacting laws that enable people to countersue these yahoos that wish to punish those who help this woman. There's nothing forbidding us from criminalizing that kind of behavior and locking those yahoos up who wish to bounty hunt these innocent women and traumatize them forever. We could lock them up for traumatizing women and those who help women get the care they need. Define it as domestic terrorism and have at it, right? It is domestic terrorism, and there's nothing preventing states from doing that. And let's like, bring it on. Let's do it fast and furious. Let's show them just how crazy this lunacy is that they've perpetuated on the world now. And like, let's get it over with so we can have an honest debate. Actually, that is the one thing about that leaked draft opinion that I actually agree with. It's time for us to have an honest and open and democratic debate about this and figure out how in a civilized society we address these issues. And, um, you know, the one thing that they say to justify this is that it's time for women to lobby their state and local local elected officials for this right. That is true. It's always been true, but it's even more true now, right? It's time for women to start running for office, start running for county, state, and federal office in droves. And we've already had large and large influxes of women doing that in recent elections, but we need even more. And we need to get people elected who are going to stand up for women and their rights. And and it's going to be at a state-by-state basis it 's just going to have to be that way
0: and being anti choice needs to be disqualifying
1: exactly exactly, and people need to know where they can get good accurate information about candidates positions so that they can act accordingly and um, yeah it 's just clear you know i I also think that um, that sovereign we have lots of sovereign nations in this country the indian uh, tribes are sovereign nations and tribal reservations can serve a really important role here in helping women and protecting women and they can enforce their own laws too, you know, that that some crazy state like Texas that's sending bounty hunters can't violate that sovereignty and so I think there's any number of ways we could open up a can of whoop-ass <laughs> against these folks. <laughs>
0: Whoop-ass on order is what I have to say about that. Definitely whoop-ass <laughs> on oh, order. I, open up a big can of whoop-ass. <laughs> in, in my role as as the chair uh, in Planned Parenthood of the Post Road Task Force, along with my colleague Linda Williams from San Jose, back when John McCain was running for office and we were afraid that we'd get this result some years earlier, we took a look at things like Native American reservations, and there were some reasons why that was complex in that We have never been great as white people at honoring treaties. And there was always concern. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we can admit it. And there was always concern that if they did something that benefited themselves and it kind of flew in the face, that there'd be any number of different kinds of revenge that could be exacted by a federal government under, under, say, Republican president. And- the other thing was we managed to take this country that was so beautiful and and give its its first citizens some of the mo- re- most remote, difficult land to have their reservations on. As a result, some of these places are exceedingly remote, especially in the Western states. And getting teams of, of qualified medical folk into some of those places to meet the folks that need the care that also don't necessarily come from there A little bit complex. So not, not the magic bullet. Yeah. And expensive and yeah, not the magic bullet, but yet I I think this is no time to shut any door. And so uh, important that we think of everything, but I, 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 harken back to what you said earlier about, you know, can you imagine if we have half a million women traveling a year out of these States that are difficult and, crossing a state line or crossing multiple state lines. Like, seriously, how would you even manage such a thing? Like, I've done a lot of cross-country driving, and when you go from state A to state B, there's a lovely sign that says the governor wishes you well as you come into the peach state or whatever. We what don't have boundaries. You know, we don't have a toll booth where somebody asks you your business in in uh, Washington state as you come across the Idaho border. And uh, so how one would go about monitoring the travel of Americans to say nothing of how many times do we all hop on airplanes and get off somewhere else? And people, you know, the airplanes, airlines know we're doing it and TSA might know we're doing it, but certainly nobody is asking me for a pregnancy test on the way into the plane, you know, I mean, obvi- for obviously good reasons.
1: I know. Is every woman between the age of 12 and 50 going to have to suddenly pass a negative pregnancy test yeah. to board a plane? Yeah. Or to and cross brought, brought to line? you by the people
0: who think it's an imposition to wear a mask on a plane, right? And so it's kind of like, wow, you know, like a quick pelvic exam before you get on this flight. <laughs>
1: yes do you mind a transvaginal exam before we get on here just go over there we have a half of a curtain there. yeah
0: do you remember do you remember when they brought the body scanners on people were like what can they see on my clothes it's like you'd see a lot more if if you have to diagnose a first trimester abortion by manually i mean a pregnancy by manually Ooh, baby uh, and how American is that? And then what are they going to
1: do? <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh my God. The horror show. Here she is. She's going through the body scanner and oh! suddenly the doors clamp her in there and she's in prison because she's pregnant. Oh my God. And out comes the probe arm. And she's at seven weeks. Right,
0: right. <laughs> I will never forget when the Idaho legislature was mandating mandating ultrasounds for people before irrelevant procedures. And these guys thought that, you know, you just put a little bit of gel on your belly and you, you whip this little, you know, wand across. And <laughs> really, you know, how invasive is that? And the fact of the matter is you can't diagnose an early, early pregnancy without a probe inside a woman's vagina because you're talking about really small things um, like something that's the size of a kernel of rice. Um, and and uh, you're not going to get it with the jelly belly thing that's for late pregnancy. And so all of a sudden they're like, oh, a probe. Uh, you know, we were we were talking to members of the legislature and and one guy said to us, you know, don't tell my wife I sponsored this thing because like I won't get fed any Thanksgiving dinner. It's like Thanksgiving dinner is the least of your problems, dude. You know, she finds
1: out. Dude, dude, you just- that you authorized putting a transvaginal probe up women's vaginas <laughs> in your police state. Yeah. Hello. Like does land of the
0: free home brave? I, I, th- I don't think you're brave enough to go home and tell that story. <laughs> That's outrageous. <laughs> and, um, and we're talking about this on a nationwide scale. It's like, I can't imagine that these guys really know what they're talking about. And I sort of have this feeling that if you don't understand what you're talking about when you're talking about women's pelvises and the politics. Maybe don't legislate. <laughs> maybe don't. Maybe you're not. I don't know. Maybe just don't legislate. Them. Yeah. Maybe, Maybe you know, come up with some car safety or maybe- something. You probably know something about your Ford F-150, but, like, leave this to the pros. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to ask you about from a legal perspective is, are we citizens of states in America? Like, one of the arguments they're saying about why anti-choice state X should be able to govern what, you know, Susie that has a dwelling there does in legal abortion state Y is because somehow they are their citizens and, and that they get to exercise some sort of control over what their citizens do, even in other places. I am struck by how no one has tried to apply this to weed Right. So we've got pot sales in some (laughs) states and not pot sales in other states. And I don't remember ever hearing about Alabama saying, hey, you know, the Alabama Mobile, Alabama Citizen X went to Colorado on vacation. And I think they got some edibles and, you know, and we're going to prosecute them
1: for what they did that is legal in Colorado.
0: Talk to me about that.
1: It's insane. I mean, like, 38 or 39 states actually do recognize that women have equal rights in their state constitutions. And, you know, that's big, that's important. And yet, our federal constitution still doesn't recognize that women have equal rights. That's still a struggle to this day. Because we didn't, we couldn't pass the ERA, right? Exactly. And yet we have enacted the ERA, But it's just a question of this one little procedural glitch that the majority of Republicans in the U.S. Senate refuse to embrace. So Mitch McConnell is basically holding up the federal equal rights amendment, which would put a lot of light on this. You know, this that would kind of create a whole new world here. But there's a reason Mitch McConnell is doing that. You know, they don't want women to be fully recognized as citizens, as real human beings. And I can't believe I'm saying that, but that is the reality. That's the only reason a modern day politician, this is what 2022, would say, oh, the democratically elected majority of states have said, oh, yeah, women have equal rights under the law, period. End of conversation, that is the constitution, that he would reject such a thing and hold it up and obstruct and delay and obfuscate. There's no excuse for that. I mean, how would men feel? Like, the only thing I can think of is like, what if we had um, the Federal Bureau of Sperm Accountability? Like, if every sperm is sacred, then every single sperm should be regulated and and really at the, at the point source, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so like, why wouldn't we regulate every single sperm, where it ends up, how it's used, and if it's used responsibly? Well, because, geez, men are the citizens, but they haven't been regulated in that way. And, and really, that's what we're talking about here. If we're on the brink of doing transvaginal ultrasounds on women before they can board a plane or cross a state line, then we need a Federal Bureau of Sperm Accountability, too. Right. Absolutely.
0: I mean, you know, if you take this to its logical conclusion, you end up in this bizarre, dystopian, completely un-American values-wise place, right? I mean, what does freedom mean if you can't get on a plane and go where you want in America? Mm Mm-hmm. What, what does freedom mean if you can't get in your car and do a cross-country tour without showing papers or doing all that? Now, I am aware that uh, I speak from a point of white privilege, and there have been a lot of people in this country that have had to show papers in various circumstances inside the United States. And I would like to point out that that's inappropriate and un-American also. I went birding with two Asian men in Texas one time, and the the border patrol people just looked into the car and waved us on like we clearly weren't the people being targeted. You know, if my name had been Gonzalez and I wasn't a blonde person, then would I have had to prove something about that? So it, it's not unheard of in the United States for this kind of outrage to be perpetrated. But you're talking about doing it on a scale across the entire United States in ways that have never, I mean, once you're on a plane, the idea is you're kind of on that plane or you're in line for that plane. I, you know, I mean, they can check my bag to make sure I don't have weaponry, but nobody's going to tell me I can't get on the plane because of who I am or what I plan to do when I get off the plane.
1: Yeah. There's like a no fly list for women of reproductive age. Oh, sorry. You got to get your vagina scanned real quick.
0: <laughs> right, it's crazy because we're afraid you're going to do something legal when you get off. So that's completely bizarre. It, it also moves into the realm of drug regulation. So the states are falling all over themselves to suddenly make RU four eighty six and and um, the the abortion combo difficult to get. Now here's a public service announcement piece of this podcast. When we say morning after pills or plan B, that is not what I'm talking about right now. Morning after pills and plan B are basically a dosage variety of birth control pills that would prevent implantation um, or ovulation, mostly ovulation in the first place. So it is considered to be a pre-pregnancy drug regimen. Morning after pills, plan B would be the day after your condom broke, the morning after unprotected sex. It also applies to people who've been violently attacked by a rapist, that that would be what you would use to prevent ovulation and, and um, then be able to go about your business, not concerned that you uh, got pregnant in the attack. When we talk about abortion medication or medication abortion, those are two different drugs, mifepristone. Also known as RU486, and misoprostol. Misoprostol functions to to create contractions in the uterus to help evacuate the the products of conception, and that is a different regimen. So, newspaper reporters, I've even had to explain this to pharmacists. Those are two different things. Do not confuse them. Now, I'm going to talk about the abortion regimen. So, they're making it difficult to get these drugs for abortion care, and I mean, all drugs in the United States are regulated by the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and states suddenly jumping into the mix to to create barriers to being able to get legal drugs is a little bit of a question mark area like, you know, you can't get this combo. Now, why this worries me so much is that back in the day when abortion was illegal in our grandparents' time. There were a number of things that happened that made it less and less and less unsafe. You had people using coat hangers, famously. You had people using knitting needles. Anytime you insert anything into your body, you risk perforating that uterus and creating a giant mess. Sometimes you perforate not only the uterus, but... But intestine or colon, and then you have germs spreading throughout a whole pelvis, and it's a giant big septic nightmare. And so that caused tremendous problems. One of the things that really changed the mortality picture with that was antibiotics, the ability to treat people who ended up in those kinds of conditions and all of that. What makes this anti abortion zealotry time less dangerous is the use of these drugs that mean that people don't insert anything into their bodies in order to achieve these abortions. Therefore, at least not all the time, if they're going to use this drug regimen, there are still ways to insert things into your body clearly and and to affect an abortion. But if you don't do that, you stand far less chance of perforating yourself and therefore far less chance of going septic and therefore far less chance of dying. So to attack the provision of medication abortion directly correlates to the number of people you will kill if they decide to self-abort anyway and and resort to some of the older, uh, less helpful methods, the ones that can really... The cruel. Cruel and could go sideways. Call them cruel. It's cruel. It's cruel and unusual punishment. Yes, it is. And take a whole lot more uh, skill to not have go completely sideways. And so going after these drugs, you know, while it pretends to be about order, is actually about um, making the whole thing worse and creating even more mayhem than your misguided policies did in the first place. Talk to me about that, Rouse.
1: That is called cruel and unusual punishment. And that is unconstitutional, even under the original constitution. Because, you know, here we've had a century plus of massive medical advances that have helped to save women's lives. I mean, birth control and family planning were one of the greatest public health achievements of the entire 20th century. It it saves women's lives. And so to take away all of those scientific advances from women, that have kept women alive and uh, enabled women to thrive, to take those advances away is absolute and shocking cruelty. I can't think of a better example of cruel and unusual punishment. And I think that is open for massive litigation, <laughs> frankly, because it would truly be cruel. I mean, I think I think we're going to divide into a nation of safe states and cruel states. and It's awful to say it that way and to think of it that way, but that's the truth. I mean, if they're going after the medical advances that have saved women's lives and are proven to have saved women's lives, then there's no other way around it. That's just the truth. That is the truth.
0: So we've always known that... You can't make abortion go away. You can just make it unsafe. And this is the absolute illustration of that. And I think that that's a very interesting point, Riles, that that you'd actually be compounding your error in policy by making sure it was even more unsafe because they know they're not going to stop people from doing this. They're going to just make it incredibly unsafe to
1: get it done. Absolutely. It's evil and it is cruel, period. There's no sugarcoating that. But one of the things I want to say about that is, you know, I think the fact that women have benefited from these medical advances for so long, kind of almost disconnects us from how dangerous it is to inhabit a female body and not have those medical advances. You know, we've forgotten that like, I mean, I have ancestors who literally died because of unwanted pregnancy. And, you know, I know about those ancestors because my brave grandmother bravely told my mother about it. And so that wisdom was transferred down. That's the only way I know about it. But that's true for all of us. We all have women in our ancestry who died because of these lack of advances to help women survive pregnancy, which is harrowing. And I can say that, you know, one of the most hurtful things that ever happened to me as an attorney was when I was arguing one of these um, contraceptive equity cases to a federal court in St. Louis, Missouri, which is now a very unsafe state for women. And, you know, I'm a cancer survivor. I found out I was pregnant with a very wanted child, but it was during A harrowing struggle with cancer.
0: You were mid-treatment, right?
1: Yeah, I was in cancer treatment, literally, to save my life when we found out that I was pregnant with what became my daughter. Our wonderful Claire. Yes. So, like, there I was, you know, with a wanted pregnancy, but at a very, very unwanted time, right, and a very, very complicated medical situation, and I didn't tell a soul about that pregnancy for months. My parents didn't even know about it until we knew that I'd cleared through the amnio, and it looked like things were healthy and it looked like hopefully, you know, I could make it and not relapse into cancer. And, and so like the idea that women shouldn't be able to make those decisions is near and dear to my heart. So fast forward there i am i'm arguing a contraceptive equity case to the eighth circuit court of appeals and um, i'm making the strong case that contraception and family planning are essential to women's health and without contraception the average woman's going to get pregnant 12 to 15 times in her life and when a judge on the eighth circuit pasco bowman he just blew past me and he said oh, This is an oral argument in a federal court. He says, all the women I know just love being pregnant. All the women I know just love being pregnant. And I felt so insulted and so deeply hurt by that. But it shows you the mindset of who the Republicans have put on the federal courts, that he couldn't grasp the fact that maybe a woman wouldn't want to become pregnant. 12 to 15 times in her life. Maybe she'd want to have a little agency and control and say over whether she gets pregnant 12 to 15 times in her life. But no, that was what his answer was.
0: No, they just love it because that's, that's his idea of how romantic it is to be in your traditional role and you know i'm sure he doesn't know anybody riles that was going through cancer treatment when they found out that a pregnancy that they dearly wanted was happening and and that you had to probably be calculating every minute of every day whether you could save your life in
1: this process exactly and it was very very nerve-wracking you know every minute of that pregnancy was nerve-wracking and then in the aftermath not knowing if it would relapse and here i am the mother of a young child you know will i live to see this child
0: to take care of her
1: yeah exactly and so but that's what we're talking about and i think that i think that the fact that we as women have come to so appreciate these benefits that we've had we're doing so much better than our ancestors were It makes it hard to connect it back to the fact that this is so vital and so central to our health. But it is. This is absolutely central to women's health.
0: You know, imagine that you had realized that you were pregnant uh, with Claire and you also had cancer and you were also in treatment for it and you were terrified probably of what that would mean to the fetus, et cetera, in a state where abortion was not actually an option and that you would have to make a call early and um, less informed to move yourself out of that state in case you needed to take advantage of an abortion later in order to save your life. You might have had to decide early to have an abortion in a pregnancy that actually ended up being able to be saved because
1: of anti-abortion policy. Exactly. And, and like, I had no idea that I could survive cancer at the time I gave birth. I had no idea. I felt in my heart of hearts I wanted to be optimistic and go for it. But damn it, that was my decision. That was my risk. And if had I had to move thousands of miles away to another state, I would have probably lost my job. I would have, you know, lost my health benefits. Health benefits don't just travel, you know, and I would have lost this wonderful cancer doctor who, you know, helped to save my life. I would have lost all that as a cancer patient, you know. I wouldn't, have, I mean, it would have just been an, a bloody mess. It would have been awful. It would have been cruel and unusual punishment. It would have been cruel.
0: Also, somebody who could wanted to run for office on the backs of the suffering of women could make the point that they were so Christian and pro-life. I mean, the hypocrisy of this screams off the page. Talk to me about a surplus or a, a, a dearth of domestic infants for adoption. In the opinion, Amy Coney Barrett apparently uh, weighed in with uh, Justice Alito to talk about how there just weren't enough a supply of domestic infants for adoption and that that was caused by the fact that people could get abortions in the United States. So it's a supply and demand problem, evidently. And I think we all know that we're talking about white infants, right, Um, for adoption. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're also talking about infants for adoption because today in the United States, there are 450,000 children in the foster care system that could benefit from the excellent parenting that I'm sure a lot of uh, adoptive parents could provide. But the idea that in a society sort of so focused on acquisition, maybe those folks couldn't get the infant that they wanted means that somehow other women have an obligation. To give their pregnancies up and hand them off to other folk so that those people can check their parenting box. I was absolutely floored when I read
1: that quote. What's your reaction? It's the handmaid's tale. I mean, so we are forced. What are they gonna do? Go find us, chain us, to you know, imprison us, make force us to bear children in shackles and then give those children up. And, oh, that's got no human impact whatsoever on us, right? I mean, come on, people. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the handmaid's tale. And it is cruel and unusual punishment. That's what that is. Pure and simple.
0: Amy Coney Barrett said that in, in the last decision. It's like, well, you know, you can always just have that baby and drop it off at the local fire station. That kind of thing. It's like, what oh easy peasy easy peasy and and as they said on saturday night live doing the skit just do your nine do your nine months how big a deal is that what the hell (laughs) anyway
1: (laughs) well you know that reminds me of this hilarious federal court decision this nebraska woman judge wrote it's like well If men had and then she went through the list of all the symptoms that pregnancy entails, oh, and then his his genital opening dilates to nine centimeters and he begins pushing and bloody blah, blah. Well, if men had to go through that, as Betty White said, abortion would be available at Jiffy Lube. <laughs> exactly. Come on, come on, people. Yeah. You've got to be kidding me. So, anyway, but we laugh. We laugh so we don't cry, right? Yes, exactly. We're laughing because that's so much better than hitting my head against the wall. (laughs) But oh my God. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the level of
0: insensitivity, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, just because you all women love being pregnant, it's sort of like, yeah, just, you know, enjoy that pregnancy, hand this off. Surely that that won't make any difference. I I was really struck early in my career when I found out that it was big noise in the Right to Life movement, that how appalled they were, that they were unsuccessful in talking more women into giving their children up for adoption. They had exactly the same rate of adoption uptake as the evil agents over at Planned Parenthood, of which I was proudly one. And it was sort of like, wow, we don't do any better helping women decide, which I think is the nice version of coercing her, into putting children up for adoption than Planned Parenthood does. And what that that stat said to me was, there are a group of people for which giving up your children for adoption is an acceptable thing to do, and that people can wrap their heads around that. And beyond that, you don't have any inroads, no matter who you are, no matter how you talk about it that there are people who just consider that unthinkable. And I I would, you know, put a little pause here to say, I think that it does not help at all how the society talks about giving up for adoption. You know, I, I rarely have the conversation about adoption with anybody where they don't say, I would never give up my flesh and blood. I mean, you know, and people say that in loud and voices filled with conviction not knowing who might be standing around them who's in the middle of deciding what they might do about a pregnancy and that if there was somebody who for whom it might be something they could contemplate to give a pregnancy up for adoption uh, when once the child was born that maybe they had just shut the door on that by being so judgmental and so insistent about it so I would posit that as a culture, we don't really accept giving children up for adoption. We don't help women get there. We don't, you know, there are, of course, people who, you know, will will pay for care and, and things like that. But psychologically, it's not considered an appropriate thing to do in all but certain circumstances. And I really have found that the people who choose to do it are have, have a certain kind of conviction about doing that. But it is not without its cost for those folks. Like you never stop wondering whether that was the right decision and whether you can connect back with your child at some point in their lives and, and all of that. It, it is something that travels with people through their whole lives. And now, especially with DNA and a lot of things, there's no secret about this anymore. At some point, you know, someone will find you. Um, so it's interesting that that the Amy Coney Barrett's of the world are so facile with their ideas about this. Tell me what you think when you hear about this and, and how you see this as a, a legitimate solution in, in the face of depriving people of their right to choose.
1: Well, I mean... Obviously, if somebody chooses to proceed with a pregnancy and wishes to give the child up for adoption, great. I would support that choice, obviously. But having actually experienced pregnancy and childbirth and experienced the intensity of it and you know how hard the work is, I just remember the first time I held my baby in my arms after working so hard and going through so much that we can never, ever minimize the intensity of what that would feel like if you were deciding to give that child up. You know, that would be the single most profound moment of your life. And it's not like we can just poo-poo that and act like it doesn't matter. I mean... Sure, adoption is a beautiful thing. I, you know, there's no question about that, but let's not act like it has no human impact on the mother and on the child, frankly. Let's not be dishonest about that. Let's not sweep that under the rug. And so, you know, forcing women to bear children in shackles and then give that child up is cruel, pure and simple.
0: Okay, Roberta Riley. Talk to me about anything I'm not asking you about that you're dying to talk about.
1: Well, Chris, what's your take on what you think the Catholic faithful should be doing right now? You know, the Catholic
0: faithful have abortions at the same rate as any other religion. And I think the Catholic Church has a burden in that they frequently have this sort of do as I say, not as I do Thing going on. So I think any organization that has had as much difficulty with pedophile priests and malfeasance of various other kinds is not really in the position to dictate policy to a pluralistic society. In the United States, we have a separation between church and state, and the imposition of any kind of church. On the rest of us is seen to be unacceptable. And so, you know, if you poll the American public and ask them the question, you know, what does it mean to have one religion tell you what you can do in American policy about your reproductive health choices? Some 80 plus percent will say, there will never be a time I will stand by and let some religion that I don't belong to shove their stuff down my throat. It is one of the strongest features of polling in the various pro-choice legislative things I've ever worked on, that people are not interested in having other people's religion dictate to them. And they're not even interested in having their own religion dictate to them. Many religions sort of have this idea that the people in those religions hear what the religion says, but then they have their own agency. It is up to them to go out and either act upon what they believe in their religion or not, And that the religions themselves don't um, set out the law, at least in this country. And so I think the Catholic faithful have always differed from the policy of their church around abortion issues. And if you actually read into Catholic theology, there was going to be a maneuver in one of the Vatican conferences that sort of – you know they they argued for making contraception an acceptable part of their religion but then that's not the way that the pope came down after that much to the chagrin of a lot of people including the very catholic doctor who was very pivotal in inventing the birth control pill He thought having birth control pills would help make women be able to time their pregnancies properly, make them better mothers. And he thought it was absolutely integral to the Catholic way of being to use technology to improve on the situation that women had going into motherhood. And he was personally quite disappointed when the church didn't go that way in uh, Vatican II. So- I think the Catholics have always made their own way. Um, I actually think we're seeing a bit of ascendancy in not Catholicism dominating the discussion around reproductive health, but evangelical Christianity, more of the fascist side of the evangelical Christian movement, sort of deciding what what is acceptable for the public. And, tech, you know, over time, um, Catholics... And evangelical Christians have had a very uneasy alliance around anti-choice legislation. And I would bet that in response to a Supreme Court that sort of creates a free-for-all, you would have very different Catholic and evangelical responses to what they think the law should be going forward. I think that will be interesting to watch. I wanted, though, to ask you, Roberta Riley, What your thoughts are about Marsha Blackburn, the senator from Tennessee, saying that she thinks her constituents are confused about why Griswold v. Connecticut exists and why it should stand. Can you tell us a little bit bit about what Griswold is and what you think about that?
1: Sure. Griswold v. Connecticut was decided in the early 1960s, in which the Supreme Court held that married couples have a right to use birth control. And it's a privacy right that's protected in the 14th Amendment. It's just a basic, you know, right. And so to say that people are confused that married couples have a right to use birth control is really pretty shocking because something like 98% of married couples use birth control in this country. I don't think there's a lot of confusion about that. I think what Marcia Blackburn was doing is she was floating a trial balloon because abortion opponents have always conflated abortion and contraception. They've always blurred those lines, trying to get people to think that all of the most effective methods of birth control are basically causing abortions, which is cleat you know horse shit no actually i love horses it's bullshit so anyway they're sending out trial balloons because they're thinking oh we're going to start clamping down on people's access to contraception as well and it's just insane i mean i feel like she's kind of doing us a favor by by showing the other side's true colors um and we've for decades we've always had to um deal with all the misinformation campaigns that our opponents were always putting out there, trying to cause people to think that the most reliable methods actually were performing abortions. And that's not the case. I mean, and so I I do think that that's, she's really um, (laughs) showing some extremeness. And that's where I do feel like the Catholic faithful, and frankly, some of the evangelical faithful are going to start having some real questions for their their clergy, because how can this be? How can we let this stand? It's insane. I mean, evangelicals use birth control. They do in in the same
0: numbers as any
1: other religion. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that the majority of the Supreme Court now um, adheres to a very strict version of Catholic doctrine is... Something that I think a lot of the Catholic faithful are going to have a real uh, conscience problem around. The blood of American women will, you know, suddenly be a stain on the whole church. And that that will be true for evangelical churches as well. And is this really the Christian way to go? Is this really what we want to see our church doing? And I I think a lot of Americans are going to have a real crisis of conscience about that. And I I also think that even though the Catholic Church is not democratic, I think this is the perfect time for the Catholic faithful to urge Pope Francis to bring the church squarely into the 21st century and acknowledge that, you know, family planning is a good thing. It's a good and wonderful thing. And, you know, never mind what we've been saying all these years about all that. This is the time and he's the Pope to do it. And I think that he could save a lot of women's lives, frankly, if he were to do that. The other thing I want to say that I think actually really is going to make a difference on the ground in the United States and throughout the world is to acknowledge the fact that the Catholic Church owns a huge amount of medical facilities and hospitals in our country and throughout the world. And As long as the Catholic health directives forbid birth control, sterilization, and abortion, there will be cruelties that will be inflicted on women. There are other things in the Catholic directives that are not good for patients either in other settings, but but in terms of for women, it's a huge, huge bad thing. And I do think that with abortion rights becoming a state-by-state effort now, there are a lot of Catholic medical institutions on those state borders that you know are their doors going to be open to these women who need care or are they going to be closed and where is mm-hmm. the Christianity in that if you if you refuse to 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 treat these women who are fleeing the cruelties of another state where's the Christianity in that i think I think this is going to be a time that is going to challenge a lot of these otherwise seemingly concrete doctrinal edicts from above. From a servant for service provision perspective,
0: I am not at all sure that some sort of crazy state law that lets you do X will get you out of a medical malpractice situation of your own creation based on you acting on your religious faith. I think Patient abandonment is patient abandonment, regardless of how the patient came to be there. And if if you are not doing what the medical standard that has existed up to this time would dictate that must be done in order to save her life, and you refuse to do it, I think you're putting yourself right out there for the possibility of the medical malpractice industry for from uh, coming at you. So- If you are a Catholic provider and you think you get away with doing some marginal thing to a woman because crazy legislator X in your state says they think that's okay, keep in mind that might not be how this all
1: rolls out when
0: you try to get your insurance company to back you
1: up. So yeah, and I've actually met some doctors who have refused, you know, once a Catholic merger takes place with with the medical facility where they've worked, they've refused to to work there any longer. And I do think that we're going to see a lot more doctors and nurses and medical providers simply refusing to play that game um, because of that very fact, you know, the doctor wishes to take care of patients according to the medical standard of care and not be in fear that they're either going to be arrested by some crazy state or fired by, The Catholic hierarchs that may own the institution and you shouldn't have to worry about harming your own patient (laughs) for the sake of appeasing those extremists. Well, and and will that Catholic institution actually back up these
0: physicians who actually act on the catholic directives if it actually harms someone i mean i know of a number of cases where the patient was allowed to bleed and bleed and bleed until the fetus could be determined to have have died in utero without any assistance and then they swoop in and act and then when the medical malpractice people show up about how much. They put the woman at risk. The Catholic uh, system says, well, that was up to that doctor. We didn't tell him what to do. So like, both laying out the bad policy upon which people are acting and then refusing to have the backs of their providers. I wouldn't blame any provider who refused to work for an entity like that.
1: Yeah. And I, I do think that we're, we will see more doctors and nurses refusing to do that because it's it's just criminal. It's absolutely criminal. And I remember, God, one of the most traumatic stories. It haunts me to this day. It was back in my early days at Planned Parenthood. A nurse practitioner called me. She was in tears about the fact that she had just helped a woman who had been brutally raped in Tacoma, Washington, and left for dead on the side of the road. Somebody found her and drove her to the nearest emergency room, which happened to be in a Catholic-owned hospital. And there, she was not told about emergency contraception. She was not given emergency contraception. And her injuries were so bad that she was hospitalized. She was, you know, she'd been beaten within an inch of her life. And so she was hospitalized for a full week. And then by the time she's released from the hospital, she is pregnant as a result of the attack. And she was given no referrals for where to go for an abortion. And so she had to figure that out.
0: And she was in no position, of course, along the way to sort of say,
1: hey, should I have emergency contraception?
0: She was probably unconscious.
1: She was. I mean, it was like at no point did she have the information or the agency to to do anything about it. And yet she wound up having to get an abortion. And it was well, believe me, it was well past 15 weeks. So this woman would have, had this happened to her in Mississippi or Texas, she would have been forced to bear that child or cross state lines and have a bounty hunter come after her. That is cruel. But it's it's especially cruel that the doctors and nurses in that Catholic-owned hospital were not allowed to meet the medical standard of care and give her the simple drug she needed that would have prevented that pregnancy in the first place. And, you know, that's just wrong. It is absolute malpractice and it is cruel and unusual punishment. So that's my stand on it. And I I will never waver from that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> to like... I'm with you, sister. I, and and I think that uh, that uh, anyone who thinks that they should be protected while they're being cruel to somebody in seeking medical care while they're violating the medical standard of excellence in care needs not to assume that the system will applaud them for this. And if you end up losing your license because you're a mal- medical malpractitioner, then that will be up to you. I think I think that this is where. We separate the men from the boys and the women from the girls. You know, if you aren't taking care of people in a way that you know is excellent, then you have coming whatever you have coming as a professional that has abrogated your own duty. And um, there will be groups of us that make it possible for people to sue you for that. Um, so FYI, we're not going to stand for that. And, and there will be accountability. Roe may fall. But it doesn't give you license, if you're one of these people, to have at the people who are in need of your good and professional expertise. And if you fail to deliver it, then a pox on you. And, um, you know, this this system does know how to deal with people who engage in medical malpractice. Roberta Riley, anything else that you'd like to chat about? Because this has been incredibly rich, I think.
1: Oh, I just think we need to get a lot more women running for public office at all levels. And we need to get out the vote like never before. We need to pay attention to every single race on the ballot, because suddenly who's your county prosecutor is going to matter a whole lot more than you realize, <laughs> you know, and what your elected officials are doing in your state legislature really, really, really matters. And so I I really Hope and pray that this awful decision revitalizes our democracy, frankly. Vote like your life
0: depends on it, because it just might. Yes. Well, thank you, Roberta Riley, so much on behalf of the Fall of Roe podcast and all our friends. I can't tell you how wonderful it's been to have this conversation with you and how informative I've found it. Um, Thank you all so much for listening to this podcast that we've put together. I'm appalled that we're, we're here, but if we are, let's join hands and figure out how to mitigate this damage. And thanks for signing in and continue listening. Thanks so much. Goodbye and be well, everyone. Thank you for listening friends. This is Chris Charbonneau. It's been my pleasure to host this broadcast for you today. And if you'd like to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and give us a five-star review. If you'd like to connect with me in some way, please go to fallofrow.com for information. Thank you.